0: so whatever else is pulling on us Jesus is telling us immediately follow me in all things
1: Hello this is the adventure through the Bible podcast My name is Matt joining me today are your friends of mine Karen
0: Mhm hello and Amy good morning
1: and Tracy hello hello this is the adventure through the Bible on on NPR
2: (laughs) like the the audiobook version of the podcast
3: Karen was letting
1: me know
2: to
3: be with you this morning Matt, (laughs) and all my other esteemed colleagues
4: Mm, Yes,
3: yes. (laughs) Karen was
1: informing me that occasionally I'm a little loud.
2: (laughs) No, it's just his initial surge of like enthusiastic morningness or whatever. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Through the Bible podcast. No, easy, easy, easy. Audio levels.
1: I just want to get people awake and, and, and you know, <laughs> alert to what we're going to be talking about, because it's important stuff.
3: <laughs> you inspire us with your energy, man. <laughs>
1: oh, oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> well, it's funny to be our listener.
2: I will keep my quality concerns to myself.
1: Our listeners right now are going, oh, here they go again.
2: (laughs) So glad we tuned in to listen to them talk about the Bible.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Oh. Oh, gosh. Okay. All right, I suppose that's enough of that. So maybe for a change, we'll just get right into it. How's that sound?
4: Let's do it.
1: <laughs> Let's do it. So this week, we're going to be talking about the last half of Matthew chapter 8 and pretty much the entirety of Mark chapter 2. And those those both of those chapters have fingers out in all of the other Gospels, well, except for John. John is sitting over there by himself, mostly playing his own game, but... Um, so we'll we'll you know our comments will be will be related to places in uh mark and and luke as well but uh though that's basically the framework for this week is the last half of Matthew chapter 8 and Mark chapter 2 so of course we're in the gospels we've been talking about how how Jesus's ministry is starting how he is beginning to call disciples how he is starting to get the attention of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, and we're going to have some discussion about those guys today. And so uh, as he has been getting more influenced or, or gaining more influence, I guess you could say, he's starting to get a little opposition coming in front at him uh, because he is having a, uh, an influence. People are wanting to, wanting to follow him, wanting to listen to him, and uh, he's gaining some popularity. And so as we join or as we we begin um, in Matthew, oh, about in the halfway through this, through that, uh, through that book. So around chapter or excuse me, around verse 18, uh, one of the scribes comes to Jesus. Now, this is interesting because the scribes, sometimes they're kind of referred to as like these are like the guys who pay attention to Scripture specifically um, they're They've been. They've been studying, they've been learning, teaching, all all this stuff and wanting to really focus on what Scripture has said. And and sometimes these guys are against Jesus, uh, but in this case, there is a particular guy who comes to Jesus and says, I will follow you wherever you go. So something in his study had perhaps led him to understand that I and mean, maybe he was understanding that Jesus is Messiah, um, or maybe he is just so taken with the words that Jesus is saying and realizing how much they really do fit with the scripture that he would have known that uh, he's just inspired. He wants to follow this guy. And Jesus' response to him is, is rather interesting because I guess maybe it gives us a little insight into this scribe's, some of the scribes' motivations. I shouldn't speak too much for him. But Jesus, he says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Um, it's interesting because I don't think there's any record at all that I know of of Jesus owning any property. He goes and visits people in their homes. He stays with them. He eats in their homes, it, but he didn't seem to have a place of his own. And so perhaps this scribe was thinking that he was going to get a little notoriety. Maybe he was going to, you know, be able to hang out with the cool guy in his crib, you know, kind of thing. That's uh, that's some old that's some old jargon from uh, from from the cool kid days, but. Um, What what do you—yeah, I know. (laughs) But what do you you think there? Uh, Go ahead, Amy.
0: So one thing that came to my mind was just I feel like the scribes would have been attracted to him. Like if they were deep in the Word, they may have been people who were able to see him as Messiah. And so his attraction was probably real. Uh, But I do wonder when when he—when Jesus responds to him and tells him, you know, I don't even have a place to lay my head— he is also telling a person who, like if you're a scholarly type of person, you want your your comfort. You want, to, you want a place where you can sit and read your book, you want a place where you can push the world away and just sit and, and quietly absorb information. And that's not necessarily what Jesus calls us to. Um, he doesn't say, "I'm going to give you a great place to study." He says, "I want you to minister."
3: yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want you to go out and be in the world. And I think, too, It's what I was thinking about is, you know, we do get comfortable in our homes. And we do tend to gravitate towards them and want to stay in them and be comfortable and, you know, wear the nice um, comfortable clothes and, and sit down with a book or what have you or conversate with the family and not get out there. Mm-hmm. And we need to be out there.
1: Yeah. No, that's an excellent point because I I've known – Several people through my life, and I suppose I've even tended to be one of these people at times in my life who get really, really deep into the Bible. And I mean, Bibles, supplemental reading, um, you know, to the point where when you're talking to them in the middle of a discussion, they can start to quote entire paragraphs to you from obscure passages. And, you know, that can that can be be rather amazing and rather inspiring but at the same time these aren't people who tend to go out and get their hands dirty they are uh they're very head knowledge but not very boots on the ground if you know what i mean introverts yeah a lot of introverts
4: (laughs) (laughs) well i
0: resonate with this passage because i feel like that's my temptation that Mm -hmm. is very much my temptation um you know, to be alone and absorb head knowledge. That's what I want. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah,
2: I know that that's my weakness. Yeah. Well. Right. So the, so the thing I think to, and, and this guy's a, a classic example of it, you know, the thing to guard against is the, the growing unwillingness to go out and engage with a messy world that doesn't order itself quite so mm-hmm. conveniently. Right. Um, Paul has a good way of saying this. I'm having currently struggling to find this tiny book in the New Testament. Ooh, wait, we might have it. Um, okay. He says, this is in 2 Timothy 2. He says, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier, which is what we're called to do, because this is a battlefield. Gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. That's an interesting text to me because it's, it sounds, you know, We, I, I've had my own opinion of, you know, watching the military over the years because you can see them let go of everything that's going on around them and just focus. Right to the to the, point, to the point where sometimes I've just kind of like, oh, dear, you know, forehead slap, like, hey, guys, there's more happening than the army. Like, it's OK. But they're they're fully engaged in what their their calling of the moment is. And what would happen? What would happen if Christians served God like that? Like if they actually thought of themselves as soldiers who were enrolled in the ranks of God's army? Because we are. That's what we're supposed to be. We're his children, we're his soldiers, we're his character witnesses, we're his, all of the things, you know, we're supposed to be, are we supposed to stop and learn? Yeah, because that's how we change, you know, and with our learning, we become open to him and then we take those changes out into the world and whichever, you know, I think, um, I think you're, you know exactly right that is very easy for an introvert and for an extrovert the difficult part of that whole process is going to be the sitting and learning and the quiet and the letting god speak to your heart and into integrating those changes into yourself Mm. the easy part will then be about the world sharing what you have like i've known people that had two drops of theology or or sort of book or discipline learning in their veins but they would open that they would be sitting at a bar drinking a beer and they would open their mouth to the person person next to them and talk about God with all of their heart and it was just like
4: mm-hmm.
2: oh okay I found my I found my counterpoint it, there it is that's the thing yeah mm-hmm. yeah so the whole process is valuable is all I'm saying mm-hmm.
1: Sure it is. Yeah, of course, because, you know, I mean, obviously, we think study is important. I mean, we've been spending three plus, you know, a little over three years doing it. Um, and I think there's a certain enjoyment that comes out of it for us. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm with, uh, like Amy said, you know, this is my temptation to sit here and do this without getting out and engaging and, you know, helping the person on the street, um, helping my neighbor across the street or whatever, you know, uh, it's just, it's that that introvert, yeah, that introvert in me that wants to do that too of just crawl inside my my little bubble and and stay there and and enjoy my books.
0: But C.S. Lewis says that he um, he found that to be one of the hardest things for him. He would think he had the day to just study, and then someone would show up who needed something, and he would say, "Clearly, the father is trying to put this person in my path, and I have to obey." But I had wanted to sit and study. Mm-hmm and uh, it's just kind of an interesting thing that he said
1: <laughs> it's so inconvenient when god wants us to do stuff that we didn't plan isn't it <laughs> yep.
0: Yep.
1: <laughs> yeah yeah <clears throat> well another disciple comes to jesus or at least another person i guess we'd call him a disciple these aren't apostles we haven't gotten to that part yet but another disciple comes to jesus and he wants to follow but he says first let me go bury my father so Um, You know, and if I'm recalling right, I think I might have heard different aspects of this story. One of them being that this man's father may not have actually even been dead yet, but was very old. Um, And I I don't remember how I'm remembering that properly or if I'm completely making it up in my head. But the idea that this guy wanted to do something else before he followed Jesus. And Jesus's response is... I don't it, you know, it seems very blunt and I'll be curious about you guys' um and gals. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> call me a guy. I'm one of
0: the guys. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> um uh his response I'll just be curious about your 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 take on this because his response I'm so blunt and so I don't know, kind of raw. Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. I mean I just If this man's father had recently died, that seems like a rather rude thing to say. And if he hasn't died yet, I don't know. It's still sort of an odd. uh, It's sort of a I'm not even sure what word I want to use. It's just very blunt, very direct, very raw. What do you what do you think?
0: The only thing that first comes to my mind is Jesus words. Follow me and let the dead bury their dead. So whatever else is pulling on us, Jesus is telling us immediately, follow me in all things. But the rest of the passage is hard for me to interpret.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I do think that Jesus is pointing out that there are priorities to be taken into into account here. And he's he he's not saying that he wants this man to be callous about his father's death, but or that he doesn't want him to be compassionate about his father's death, or that Jesus doesn't have compassion about, about this man's his death. But if you're going to follow Jesus, that that must come first.
0: Well, I have sometimes struggled with this passage because I have a strong urge to care for my extended family. And um, I feel like our family's pretty close. And, you know, is Jesus at all telling us not to do that? No, because we have other passages that say... You know, like Jesus ends up taking care of Peter's, is it, mother-in-law? Because they're hanging out with family. So he's not saying that we're to neglect or ignore family. Mm -hmm. He's just saying, uh, get your priorities straight.
1: Yeah, and I don't remember where I heard or read this, but the idea that the man's father may not have been dead yet and that he was using this as a way to delay... um, You know, I have, you know, I really got to take care of this first and then I'll follow you, Jesus. You know, that that has some implications of its own.
2: When Jesus talks to people, one of the things that I've noticed about all all of the years of like his actual recorded conversations. Now, this stood out to us all in the Old Testament when we're looking at how God handled Israel, bringing them out of Egypt, bringing them into the promised land, blah, blah, blah. There was no formula where things were always the same. And part of that is, so, I I think, because God is leading humans who would immediately latch onto the formula rather than the God that was executing the whatever form of salvation they were looking at, right? Conquering the enemy, making the changes, setting up the rules. Humans struggle with formulaic thinking. If I do this and this, then God owes me that, right? And so... I think in the New Testament, when Jesus is actually here talking to people, his interactions with people are exactly that unique. They are, they are unique to the person, but only he knows what's going on in their head. But he's got a way, you know, he's obviously mm-hmm. fully connected with the Holy Spirit. He's hearing his father. He looks at a person and he knows what to say. And I think as we go through the Gospels, we'll see that over and over where he handles different people, different ways. In fact, I think we'll see it today if I think about those stories that we're going to read through, where to one person, he'll he'll say to them a completely separate set of things with completely separate priorities. And then to someone else, it's completely different. And that's because he's ministering to each person. So rather than us trying to take that and make it into a blanket statement of how everyone should be, which is the human tendency of formulaic thinking, I hope that we can simply admire his personal knowledge of each person he runs into and understand that he also pursues each one of us that way and also understand that our tendency to want to put together a system that will address all problems is actually a non-existent solution. Does that make sense?
4: Mm-hmm.
2: It makes excellent sense. I like that, that a lot. That's what I was going to
1: say. Well, Luke expands on the story a bit. Because what he says is, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. So I think there's maybe a little bit more than just physical death involved here. I think there might be like some, you know, talking about some spiritual death, too. It's like, you know what? You've got other things to do. Don't don't let yourself get caught up in these things that are less important. And then Luke also Uh, Gives us um, another example here where another disciple says I'll follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. So I'm assuming that he has some guests or whatever. And uh, he wants to wants to see the guests off, which is, you know, I mean, that's only polite, right? But uh, Jesus is again he's like you need to get your priorities you know you have to understand where your priorities are because he says no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of god interesting statement there too because you know you have to keep your eye on the goal It it makes me think of the uh story of lot and his wife if you remember when she looked looked back (laughs) to sodom and gomorrah as it's being destroyed and the implication there is that she's looking back with some longing, as, as terrible as that place had been. She was turning around and, and and looking with some sorrow as this place that was just utterly evil was being destroyed. And, you know, we know the story. She was turned to a pillar of salt. And it's, uh, you know, it's not so much just that, you know, she turned around and and was looking. But it was just the reason she was looking. She just wasn't going to move forward.
2: I have to sympathize with Lot's unnamed wife. I am very curious. I resist change. Mm. And not only would I be like, but I didn't get to bring my favorite boots. I know it's important and I am actually going, but I'm still thinking about my favorite boots and I wish they would have fit in my backpack, right? Okay, so there's that aspect of it, but there's also the aspect of like judgment from God. Seriously, what does that look like? I want to look,
4: I want to look. Like
2: I'm not... (laughs) Did yeah, you see how I inserted the creepy whisper that I forbade Matt to do earlier? <laughs> um, no, like, I I would have trouble not looking back for, for many reasons. And, and so I am in full sympathy with Lot's wife, and that's <laughs> the end of my speech.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did, but, did you guys know that you can buy salt and pepper shakers with a woman looking over her shoulder? That's a real thing.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh,
4: okay, since Amy okay, so knew, John knew
0: that. Do you, you have
3: some? You have a pair of those salt No, in here.
0: Calvin bought some for his brother <laughs> who is a Hebrew scholar. <laughs> he thought it was hilarious. He found them on eBay and it was like oh, it was a picture and it and then the joke at the bottom said which one is which one is salt. And then <laughs> and then uh, Calvin went online and actually found them and bought a pair for his brother.
2: <laughs> okay, so so when the scripture says be salt like
0: how <laughs> <laughs> context Karen
1: context oh,
2: context oh. is so important because
1: <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't you know it wasn't I don't think it I don't think it was just that she was looking back in curiosity I think she was looking back with some longing she was I mean look at how hard it was see we were just talking about this story in our class yesterday morning how hard it was for God to come up with enough people to not destroy the city. When uh, Abraham had been talking to him, oh, what if there's 50 people? What if there's 40? Got all the way down to 10. What if there's 10? And God said, I won't even destroy it if there's 10 people. And all that they were able to get out of there was four people. Not even Lot's extended family was interested. It was Lot, his wife, and two daughters. And I have a feeling that even his wife, and well, maybe even his daughters, after what they do after, you know, immediately in the next part of that story, Maybe they were like, not,
0: uh, not exactly pure in heart.
1: Not yeah. exactly had, pure in heart as it was. They had Sodom in their heart. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and so, so when she's the one looking back with longing, and it's turned turned into a pillar of salt. You know, it's uh, it's it's just there's there's more than just basic curiosity going on there. I think.
2: Okay, we're now fully distracted from Matthew yeah. eight. But while yeah, we're yeah. on the topic, his daughters. You know he had moved to that area at his own choice, and we we look at the examples of that of that story where like the men of the city come and they say, "Hey, we saw those guys who came to visit you. They're hot. Pass them out. Like we want them. Like that is such a horrible thing. Like I can't. I can barely even get my brain around a city where corruption Mm -hmm. and perversion is that." Rampant, right? But Lot's response to me isn't a whole lot better. Oh, no, no, leave my male guests alone. I have virgin daughters. I'll Mm -hmm. let you have them, right? Like everything about this, including (laughs) Lot, has -hmm. been wildly corrupted by living in this atmosphere. And to me, that is a really good example about how our surroundings can change us, even if we're not intending to change. Mm -hmm. What father in his right mind would Mm -hmm. prioritize? His male guests, who actually stand a fighting chance of defending themselves, over his daughters, who it is his job to care for. Like, I, can't, I can't even get my brain around it. And then you take them outside the city and look what happens between Lot and his daughters. And they had clearly been, even though their bodies had been preserved from all of that stuff. There you go. Like you said, Tracy, they had, they had some Sodom in their brain because they were ready to do things that they shouldn't have even thought of. Yep. I don't know. That's a very disturbing story. And back
4: to
1: Matthew. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. But see, that that whole point, it does it does still apply to Matthew because Jesus is like, you cannot be looking back if you're wanting to follow me. Uh, and, if, you know, of course, our tendencies are always going to be to, you know, it's just going to be part of us. We're going to always look and see and, you know, remember the, these things. But our tendency has to be moving forward with Jesus. It can't be. Oh, but I got to take care of this first. Or, oh, I want to do this first. Or, you know, I think we've even talked here about people are like, how long can I go before I before I finally commit myself? How close to death can I be before I commit myself and still make it to heaven? And that's just not the way it works. You have to be committed and following and and making that your, your tendency, your priority. And that is Jesus's point here.
0: Well, yesterday after the pastor's sermon, I sent him a quote uh, from C.S. Lewis about the, the old life. Like when a person has has turned away from their old life, they don't want the old life back. Like once you have Jesus in your heart, you don't want it back. And so that question that you're asking, how long can I go, how close can I get to the edge, blah, 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 is absurd when someone is looking, has, has tasted and seeing that Jesus is good and kind and and has experienced his love. And so what Lewis says that's so interesting is says, <clears throat> this isn't an exact quote. I was trying to remember it. A return to the old life is like the ravings of a prattling whore to a man who has just discovered that his true love, whom he has thought was dead, is alive. And even now standing at his door. That to me is like that just resonates in my heart completely. That's very good. Mm-hmm. I love that.
1: All right. Well, moving on, we get into uh, uh, we get into a very interesting story about Jesus and his his disciples. He wants Jesus wants to cross the Sea of Galilee. And obviously, the only way to do that is is in a boat. And so I'm not even sure how many men are with him at this. But I don't know if he's called the 12. Like I I said before, the chronology and these things is a little is a little wonky. But um. At any rate, Jesus and some of his disciples get into a a boat and these fishing boats. They're not huge. I mean, we're not talking cruise liner. We're talking, you know, a small boat and they begin to go across uh, the Sea of Galilee or it's in some places they call it a lake. It's a it's a big lake, (laughs) but uh, inland sea type thing. But um, a windstorm comes up and the waves begin to break over the sides of the boat and start to capsize the boat. I've been in a small boat on a lake when a big storm came in. And I mean, we're just talking a lake here in Colorado. It's uh, up, up by Fort Collins It's called horse tooth reservoir. And the waves were higher than the boat. And that was freaky because fortunately really, my, Oh, it was, yeah, yeah it was, it yeah, it was wow. a, it was a wicked, Storm that rolled in, and we just had to get off the lake as quickly as we could. And my dad was doing this funky thing of just kind of keeping the boat in between the waves as we were going along. And then occasionally we would have to cross it, you know. And wow. and um it was it was it was pretty it was pretty scary. Now you know that's a little ski boat, uh, and I would imagine these fishing boats are slightly larger than that. But just you know, as those waves were just coming up, they weren't coming over the top of us because we were able to ma- net manage it and navigate it. But That's a scary situation. And the the, the disciples thought that was a scary situation. Yet here is Jesus. He's decided to take a nap in the stern. That's the back of the boat, for those of you who don't. uh, You non-Navy guys. I'm sure Tracy knew that. I knew that. (laughs) Yeah, I know you guys know that. (laughs) I have smart people here. But so Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat, though. (laughs) During this storm... And I'm thinking about that. I'm like, I, there's no way I could have slept through that. No way I could have slept through that. And Jesus is just peacefully taking a nap in the back of the boat while the waves are trying to sink the thing. And the disciples, they finally go to Jesus. Don't you care that we're perishing? That's the way Mark writes it. Don't you care that, that we're perishing? And it says that Jesus wakes up and he rebukes the wind by just saying, peace, be still. And he asked them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Uh, it's always interesting to, me, interesting to me when Jesus asks his disciples, how can you not have faith? How is it that you don't have any faith? How is it that you have so little faith? Uh, it's always an interesting phrase because I compare myself to those guys. And I'm like, those guys have way more faith, I think, than I yeah. do.
3: <laughs> so, or, or, the, or the fact is, I, w- I might have done the same thing. Or, yeah, exactly. I might have done the same thing. Yeah.
2: I'm sitting here looking at, you know, have they found any, you know, sort of zero century fishing boats and how big were they and what were they made out of and stuff like that. So looks like typical building materials was ochre cedar and the typical size. So it has to fit at least two men. I, I would guess three or four, but at least two men in order to fish, right? With those big manual nets Mm -hmm. has, you know, it has a sail. So it says the average size is between 20, 20 and 30 feet long, about seven to eight feet wide and about four feet deep. So that's, you know, roughly says they found several of them. Some of them have been preserved and put into um, museums and stuff like that. Says it could, you know, could carry could carry a crew of up to ten people or passengers if they weren't fishing. If -hmm. it was fishing, it could hold up to five crew members and hold up to about six hundred pound. No, not up to between six hundred and higher uh, pounds of fish. So Mm -hmm. there's some interesting. Ideas about what that
1: boat yeah. might look like. So yeah, we're we're not talking about just a little rowboat. I mean, it's got a little size to that's it, nice. but but it's definitely still. Uh, it you know I was on um, oh what's I was in Chicago once visiting my brother and we were out on the Navy Pier and now I can't remember which lake that's on, one of the Great Lakes. Somebody can tell me later, but I remember that day, of course, that lake is so big. And I would imagine it's probably similar to looking at, at, um, Sea of Galilee.
2: Well, there's Michigan and Superior and yeah, there's those lakes. Are yeah, huge.
1: I think you know, I'll have to look at a lake later. My geography is broken in my brain right now, but you know, it's huge. It looks like you're looking out at the ocean, but I remember the day that we were there, it was cloudy. It was, it wasn't necessarily stormy, but the waves were go- rolling pretty good. and um You know, I remember thinking I wouldn't want to necessarily be out on that lake, you know, Uh, it was it was going pretty good. And so I I could just sort of picture that as being what we're sort of seeing here, but maybe even a little a little more. But so, you know, waves big enough to capsize a boat of this size, it's it's nothing small. And remember the song the
0: Edmund Fitzgerald.
1: (laughs) You're going to have to sing it for us now.
0: Yeah, you know what I mean? Right. Do you guys remember that? No, it was no, about a you're, boat. You're that... going to
3: have to sing it for us.
0: Oh, you guys, seriously, you don't remember <laughs> that? No, it's about a boat that went down in the Great Lakes and killed every man on man on board. Oh. Well, that's cheerful. Yeah. It, it is, it is. I think it was like, oh, Gordon Lightfoot or something. It was my parents' music, but it affected <laughs> me mentally.
1: <laughs> oh, I like a little Gordon Lightfoot, but I don't remember I hearing that song. Yeah, oh, <laughs> Go ahead, The Karen.
0: Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Hmm. I'll have to look that up.
1: Yeah, I'm gonna look it up now. Go ahead, Karen.
2: <laughs> so the thing, okay, so I have to, you know, Jesus says things like that. Oh, you of little faith, you know, where is your faith? He says things like that. And you know, he can he can do miracles. He can feed five thousand people with a few bits of bread and some fish. He can stand up and holler at the waves and they lie down and be quiet. You know, he he has he can do these things. And I guess if I felt like if I could do those things, I would have a lot less concerns and worries and fears about the world surrounding me. But, you know, in my little experience of life, I can't tell the weather what to do. I can't order food out of nothing I have to go through this rather mundane process of planning ahead and trying to prevent calamities and trying to provide for my own, you know, food if I want to have those things. So I I get what he's saying, but I always kind of give a little shake of my head when he says something like that, because I'm like, Jesus, they couldn't do that. And then then I have to wonder, could they? Right. Could, Could any of us? Like, actually, what are we supposed to be doing? You know, Jesus Jesus did all kinds of miraculous things then when he was here, and he said, you will see greater things than this. Yeah. So, like, are we supposed to be engaging with faith at this level, and we just don't have the spine to stand up and do it? I don't know.
1: Yeah, you know, that's something I've tried to wrap my brain around a lot of times, you know, these things we see Jesus doing. And I've heard a lot of times people saying Jesus never used any Means that we don't have at our disposal, meaning that he wasn't he wasn't tapping into his own divinity to perform miracles, but rather he was tapping in. And I'm using that word tapping in. You know what I get. I ho- hopefully, you understand what I'm getting at. But he's using he's using the power of the Father or the Spirit. You know, and so it makes me wonder at times. It's like, am I supposed to be able to do this stuff? Is it really that? I don't have that that my faith really is rather weak even when I you know I feel like it's pretty strong I recognize my my limits though and you know may, may, but, maybe
2: maybe that's some of the limits defined by the human sphere right right the, the human perspective if I you know the the things that I've ever done in my life is that my idea of my limits yeah. do I look at my limits through God's eyes I have no idea how to right nobody's ever told me my limits from god's mm. eyes
4: mm-hmm.
2: so i don't know how to i don't know how to stretch into something i can't even define and so and so i'm left with well i mean god could save me if He wanted to god could make food magically appear god could call in the storm i can't do those things that's mm-hmm. where i'm left
4: right
1: yeah no i hear you i'm right there with you i'm right there with you
0: you know that verse in revelation 14 that says um these are they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Mm -hmm. I love the last part of that verse. And it it makes me think a lot about what Karen's bringing up. Like the faith of Jesus is what? Like Jesus has absolute faith, which gives him courage, which gives him. And it's, to me, it's more just thinking in terms of what does that look like? It looks like someone who just thinks God is good and he He always has my good in mind. He always has my family's good in mind, et cetera. And, and looking in faith and, and having the faith of Jesus is, is trying to wander in a new world. Like we're living in a world that's not so broken now because, um, I understand that my loving heavenly father is good. Um, and so I don't know, my mind just jumps to that. It jumps to the idea that, um, it regroups your entire mental outlook. Uh, When you start thinking God is on my side and cares about me and I'm like this nobody, but he, but I'm not nobody. I'm a daughter of God. And so anyway, that's where my mind went with that one.
4: Mm -hmm.
1: There's a lot, there's a lot to unpack with it. And, um, you know, I don't get, I don't necessarily get a feeling that Jesus is rebuking these guys, but maybe trying to get them to just think think because
2: it's the fear it's the fear that he calls out Mm -hmm. you have little faith why are you so afraid
1: yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and the disciples this is an interesting thing too because you know i remember reading that um peter's brother um is it andrew yeah his brother andrew when he came to him said we found the messiah I, I You know, when you read this story and their response, when they go, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? They, I don't, I'm not sure that at this point they had really figured out who he was.
3: No, I don't think they've grasped it yet. The whole, they, you know, the the big picture, if that sounds, you know, mm-hmm. bit, kind of cliche, but I don't think they had it yet. And I don't think they really got it until, um, you know, Pentecost and the Holy Spirit I don't think they had a full grasp of it yet. Yeah, they, they, still a, they were still in a learning mode. And and a lot of times they had to see it, see it to believe it, which, you know, once again, isn't faith. They didn't quite have it yet.
1: Yeah, yeah. They just think they're following a teacher and it's
3: like, oh, wow.
2: So remember what we, what we were talking about the other week where it was kind of the idea that that maybe in, in faith, there's a recognition of the different roles of authority. Like I have faith in myself to do certain things because I consider that as a child of God, these things are within my authority to try to work with and influence, right? There's a very small specter of things on the earth that are in my absolute control. And then there's a larger group of things on the earth that are within my realm of influence. And it is my job to try to influence those because I am a Christian and I'm walking this walk. But I genuinely believe that an element of faith is understanding which roles God has authority over, and mm-hmm. then relaxing about them because you know that they're in His palm, right? So if we if we take that mentality and we go back to what the disciples say in verse 25, "Lord, save us! We're going to drown." And His reply is, "You have little. Of, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid?" It kind of takes on a different thing. So they would have stopped being afraid, not because the storm suddenly became less, but because they understood that authority over the storm was in the... Which end of the boat was it, Matt? Please correct me. It's
1: the stern, Karen. It's in the back.
2: (laughs) The stern stern of the boat (laughs) had authority, like there was authority over the storm. And really all they needed to do was go shake his shoulder and say, "I I need your help like if i look at it from that point of view then it's not that he was telling them oh come on it's just a little storm it's that he was telling them no i'm here all i have to do is look at this thing and it will be quiet and you see so like it's a different recognition of yeah authority sovereign his sovereignty
1: yeah no that's excellent that's really good yeah because he's he's saying yeah his point was why are you afraid i'm right here because it's handled. It's handled. Right,
4: right. You
1: don't need to freak out about this. That is uh, that is an excellent point.
2: And, and we should keep that point in mind, because as we move on to our next chapter, next chapters, I mean, I know we still have one left in Matthew here. But when we move on to the next chapter and there's other little stories, there's that faith comes up again. And the different ways that that understanding of who has authority over what plays out in different people who come to Jesus. It's a fascinating thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so very, yeah, very good Don't, don't be afraid
2: So I saw a bumper sticker once It said, don't tell God how big your storm is Tell the storm how big your God is Mm
1: -hmm. Nice, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. nice Okay, as we move into our next story Now this is a, this is a creepy story
2: Okay
1: (laughs) And we've got to reconcile a little bit of discrepancy here Between the gospel writers This is a story about demon possession and it's, it's, it's creepy. I've never, I don't know if anybody ever made a movie about, well, I I don't know. Anyway, that's, that's, whatever. I say there's, there's a discrepancy here because Matthew talks about two demon possessed men, Mark and Luke both talk about one demon possessed man, but the stories are so utterly similar that it seems fairly obvious that they are talking about the same thing. So I don't know why there's this con- there's this discrepancy. I don't know why. I don't know. I don't know if, if Matthew is remembering it differently. At this point, we haven't even gotten to the point where Matthew has been called. So um, maybe this is Matthew's. I, I don't know. I don't. Know, I don't know why they we have this discrepancy. But the points are going to be the same.
0: Maybe it's too early to say this, but. I, um, this story to me is right after he calms the wind and the waves. And so I think what's probably happening is when, as Matthew's remembering that he's thinking, wait, Jesus had even greater authority than that, because Mm -hmm. he could cast out demons. And so in his mind, that story comes next. I don't know for sure, of course. Um, but then the other thing that comes to my mind is that right away, people, you know, they say things, funny things, about how someone might be, like, they'll look at someone who's um, clean-cut, middle-class, you know, whatever, and they'll say, oh, that person would make a good believer or a good Mm. Christian, and you're like, huh, that's interesting, because what the Bible says is the demoniacs made good Christians, (laughs) Um, you know, and so these are people who, they know who they are, they know how bad they are, but when they come to Jesus, they're completely changed.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to relay this as one person, since there's more of a consistency between Mark and Luke, and, and you know Matthew's details will come in as well. But so this guy comes out of the tombs, um, which is in itself has some interest to the story because anything associated with the dead was considered unclean by those people. And so, the, first of all, this guy living in the tombs, he's already disenfranchised on that aspect.
3: But isolated, maybe. Isolated. Is,
1: mm-hmm, isolated. I don't know if he's there because he couldn't live with people. I don't know if he's there because this demon possession pulled him there. I don't know exactly what's going on. But this guy... He's described as being naked, um, having superhuman strength. We're told that he had been bound with chains many times and had actually broken the chains. So maybe this is why he is there. He's, you know, he's just there. Let him stay there by himself because we can't control him. We can't do anything with him. He's crying out. He's cutting himself. Not in a good place. He is just absolutely in a terrible, terrible condition and very i mean it's very quickly they say he was a demon but he's demon possessed so um, this isn't like oh he just has some weird health thing it's it's very it's very clear what's going on here
0: i just wanted to say matt you crack me up not in a good place
1: not in a good place <laughs> well <laughs> i wouldn't want to be demon possessed i don't think the king know. of
0: understatement <laughs> <laughs>
1: Now, interestingly, and this is something that we see happen several times. This demon-possessed man comes out and knows who Jesus is. In fact, um one of the gospels specifically says he came out and worshipped Jesus. Now I thought that was a very, I think it's Mark. Mark said it. He that he ran out and worshipped Jesus. Now that is a weird concept for me to wrap my brain around that this demon took this man out to worship jesus or maybe this man had a moment of clarity i don't know
0: and maybe ran he had out. some part of himself he could still control
1: that's you know yeah possibly that had just come to my 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 you know the possibilities in my brain just now but but um this I idea that it. he was able to worship jesus was interesting
3: i thought 29 was kind of cryptic though you know, when he comes out and suddenly they cried out saying, what have we to do with you, Jesus, the son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Mm-hmm. I love
2: that verse. I love that mm-hmm. verse. So
3: mm-hmm. it's like, to me, it's like almost like the fallen angels. They know who Jesus is. They know the plan. Yep. yep. And it's like, you know, it, to me, it's like, it's almost laying the foundation before and it's, I don't know, it, it, it's kind of, it, it gives me, like, just sensations up and down my spine going, okay, they already knew, you know, and the disciples were struggling. I
2: think, I think there's this supernatural realm that we can't see. Oh, yeah. Because, right, because right. we're in our fallen state, because Earth is the battleground on which this is playing out, I think that we're not allowed to or we can't see. But that doesn't mean it isn't happening and that the players fighting each other in the spiritual realms, the supernatural realms, can't see it. Like these demons that were in this man or men, could they recognize Jesus for who and what he was like at a hundred paces? And they also clearly know the Bible, know that they're fallen, know that they won't be saved and that there will be an end to their reign, their years of power. I thought the whole story was just fascinating. Yep. Right. It it hinges on that. Like mm-hmm. we're getting
0: a tiny tiny glimpse into that massive battle and that particular man is the battleground that day.
1: Yeah. It's it is an interesting thing to see that the the demons, the fallen angels are able to recognize Jesus in a way that the people who are following Jesus don't. They know very clearly who they're dealing with. They know that this is the God of heaven, the one who created them, the one who created the planet they're on, um, the one who has total authority. And uh they're calling it out.
2: So Mark's <clears throat> Mark's description of what the uh demons say is interesting. That's where the famous text comes from my name is Legion for we are many, right? So Jesus actually speaks directly to the demons. And their their response is, uh, you know, he says, what is your name? And he says, my name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. So there's this interesting, one of the most interesting parts of the story is where the demons ask to be sent into the pigs. And the reason this is interesting to me is, why was that preferable? Why was it preferable to go into a herd of animals rather than to be out and unhoused? So I don't know the laws of the spiritual warfare, but if they became unhoused from the body that they were sent to, this man or men, would they have to go back and report to Satan that they had failed in their mission and they were now needed? And then, like, why is that? Why would they rather go into a herd of pigs than to be outside of this man's body? Like, I don't I'm so curious about that. Interesting but
0: what about the fact that they are immediately unhoused again like they I go know, in they go into the hogs and then the hogs are killed so so i think it has to be that they simply wanted to upset the local population like their role is chaos their oh, their intention 80. is yes. chaos
4: yeah mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> you know it's interesting though Karen when you were talking about having to report to satan i recently listened to an audiobook of the screw tape letters i had been wanting to read it oh, forever yay. Yeah. yeah i'd been wanting to read it forever and i just remembering how um i don't remember the one character's name but you know uncle screw tape is the one who's always talking and and screw tape is always so irritated when when the one wormwood. fails wormwood thank you when he fails the screw tape is so irritated when wormwood fails and you know the depictions the depictions of the way mm-hmm. hell works and stuff and that is very fantastical i don't i don't by it for a second but it is interesting it's an interesting look into the ways that uh, that that faction could work behind the scenes and and under the surface okay real
0: quick Karen um yep. was it the one by John Cleese yes yeah. mm-hmm. I
2: love that one
1: <laughs> yeah yeah it was interesting hearing John Cleese read that yeah
2: so I listen I, I listen to a lot of different types of interviews and podcasts and whatever. And the, some of the ones that really stand out to me are people who have come out of direct Satan worship. And some of them have, have worked their way mm. up. over. Maybe they were in it since they were a kid or, you know, their parents were in it and they swore themselves into it when they were little. Or somebody put them in it before they even were old enough to have a choice, right? Whatever the situation. One of the things that they all say in common is that when the when Satan is in charge of a ceremony, now we're talking ceremony here, we're not talking real life out moving around who knows what might happen, we're talking a ceremony so there is a difference of scenario but that he does not tolerate any mistakes mm. you will be punished severely or killed on the spot if you mess up any detail which is why the the uh, satanist followers practice the ceremonies they they'll sometimes practice ceremonies for years in advance when they know that there's an event coming up and they need to get ready for it and they need to make sure it goes right part of the formula that makes it work is their performance of every single detail correctly so That's that's the viewpoint I've heard. Oh, gosh, half a dozen people that have come out of Satan worship or exposure to Satanic ceremony say that exact same thing, which is what gave me that point of view about the the legion that were in this man or men. Like, why was it preferable to be in the herd of pigs? Well, I'd never thought of that, Amy, that maybe they just wanted to scare the locals and 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 it worked. I mean, the locals asked Jesus to leave. So yeah. if they were trying to, if they were trying to create chaos and terror and disrupt Jesus' work, well, they did that, but they did it while well cowering at Jesus' feet. So that's kind of interesting.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: But there's also this, but I also came at it with this firsthand information that I've heard many times that Satan doesn't tolerate mistakes.
1: Mm that mm, that is very interesting and you know the thing that to me that's also interesting about this is when they're given their way the very first thing they do is destroy and it reminds me back when job when god allowed satan to work over job the very first thing he did was attack and destroy yeah. and cause cause chaos and friction so i i can see that there's a little bit of both here they ha that's what they're supposed to be doing or at least that's That's what they do. It's their nature is to destroy, disrupt, uh, cause problems. And they don't want to have to report and say, yeah, we just failed because Jesus showed up. Um, Interesting. Very interesting. I don't know how much I want to wrap my brain around the way Satan works, but it's still very interesting.
0: So I found what Karen said particularly interesting because people always accuse God of that. That yeah. intolerance, that absolute perfectionism, um, and yet that is not what the scripture teaches. Uh, he's very kind and very tolerant of our mistakes. And, you know, the tiniest effort on anyone's part, and he says, that one's mine. I'm going to protect him, you know, or whatever. And, and I that, to me, is very interesting what you said, Karen, because I can see that. Like, if anyone's ever been in the presence of someone who demands absolute perfection, you hate them. Like, you quickly become repulsed
2: by someone who's, who's like that. Mm-hmm. Well, or, or cowed. So, depending on yourself, yes. your, your history, you can also yeah. find yourself on your knees, bowing to their every wish, scrambling to please them before you have even had a chance to think twice. So, if you get a canny devil who starts to implement his own policies of intolerance into what is supposed to be grace, mercy, love, welcome you get modern religion dogma. That's what you get. You get the ancient Pharisees in Bible time who Jesus had these great conversations with with that we'll read coming up where they had come up with hundreds and hundreds of rules about how to do every single thing. And, and you know, at one point Jesus says to them, like, you tied the herbs in your garden, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy. Like, where is your heart, man? You know? So. Yeah, it's it's interesting. This gives me a glimpse of how Satan, how Satan and his policies interact with modern day even religious thinking, and it is uh, sobering to think back on times when I have fallen for it, and to look at the at God's people as a whole. And see where they are maybe distracted by it or completely fallen for it, depending, you know, the local groups kind of develop their own flavor and and stuff like that. But I have certainly been in churches over the years where everything was very, like, no mistakes were you guys remember Eric, he used to be on the, on the podcast here. And he tells this great story about how he was visiting the church one day and this lady, it came to, it came time to do prayer requests. And this, this person stood up and started telling the story, like I'm really struggling with this sin. And I'm just like, I can, I can barely like, I sometimes just feel like I'm going to fall. And, and Eric, you know, he had a funny little moment where he came face to face with his own immature Christianity. And he was young at the time where he's listening to this person talk. And his first thought was, why is she saying all this? Doesn't she know where she is?
4: Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: So, as Christians, that tells you how much influence Satan has put into this, you know, this religion that is supposed to be based on my heart directly to God's, run to Jesus' feet and hang on. If I've committed a crime, go. If I've broken God's law and committed a, a crime, a sin, run to God, not away from God. Like it's the right. exact
3: opposite right. of what.
4: What
2: we're taught. It's like, oh, you know, you should feel shame. You're not worthy. You're not whatever. No, you're not worthy. You're forgiven anyway. Go.
3: And that's what Satan Mm -hmm. wants you to feel though, to remove you from. And so
2: he's using his own methods to distort God. And then God is still presented as the ultimate power in the universe, which but it makes people not want to be part of it. Right. Very very effective and very disappointing. The number of times in my life that I've fallen for it and it's still going on.
0: So something you said was super important, like when we have trained ourselves to run to God, we've suddenly changed the game. Like when we find that He is trustworthy even when we fail, um, that's wonderful. But what happens is so often we're told, go away, God doesn't like you. Go away, God doesn't like you. And And it's, so our sins can separate us from God in that regard. And that's what Mm -hmm. Satan wants to happen. He wants us to be so afraid of coming to God that we will actually put ourselves, you know, far away from him and not look at him, not turn to him. And so sin can take us away from the Father, but only by our choice, only by us saying, oh, I'm scared of him. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to talk to him anymore.
1: (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, these... uh... These demons, they get they get put into these pigs. The pigs run off a cliff; they all drown, and uh, the people watching the pigs run into town tell everybody what happened. And the yeah, the result I think we mentioned it here just a few minutes ago. The result is the people want Jesus to leave. Um, I've read that you know this is some of the local economy, which is interesting for a Hebrew Jewish community. I'm assuming they were. Of course, this is up, you know, around Sea of Galilee. This would be that uh, to Samaritan part of the world too. So um, it's just interesting that they have an economy based on pigs, um, which were considered unclean. Uh, but they want. I've Jesus heard to that leave.
0: too, Matt. But I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's. Yeah, I, mean, I don't I, know. It's yeah, I've heard up, it too. Something I've know.
1: heard. Because it's 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 odd why would they ask this guy to ask them to leave when it's so clear that they've done something very good for this man, but they're they find themselves uh, afraid. And so their response is we want you to go. And so Jesus is like he he's going to go. Now the man who was possessed, he wants to follow Jesus. And As often is the case, Jesus doesn't necessarily say to that person, come and follow me. In this case, though, he says, no, I want you to go home, and I want you to tell everybody what happened. We see at other times that Jesus says, don't tell anybody what happened today, and they tell everybody anyway. So it's just sort of interesting the way that Jesus sometimes with, with one person will say, you know, use a tactic, and in another time, so will use a tactic with another person. And sometimes I wonder why. Sometimes, but um, interesting here that he's very specific. Go tell everybody what happened.
0: What yeah. So later in the scriptures, um, Jesus comes back there, and the people flock to see him, and mm. so it works. Like they they realize this these men this man or these men are truly changed. And that change in their hearts is a witness to those people. And maybe it took a while, and maybe they were startled by what happened, you know, with the pigs. Mm-hmm. Um, but then what what ends up really happening is that that whole community starts to realize uh, Jesus has power in our lives. So
1: they just kind of, they weren't ready for him then, yeah. but this was a catalyst for them to be able to start rethinking
0: yeah,
2: I should have looked up where that is, but it's um that's that's exactly what I was gonna say. That's why I had my hand up. It starts in, in Matthew 34, I think. Let me okay. see. No, Matthew four, 4, sorry, 14. Matthew 34. <laughs> 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 anyway, yeah, he goes, yes, uh 34 through 36. But when they had crossed over, they landed at Genesaret, and when all the men in that place recognized Jesus. They sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. So, they were ready. Right, right.
0: Yeah, he comes back, and they're ready. Interesting. I want to be that good of a witness. Right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, as usual, I bit off more than we can chew, and we were planning on going into Mark chapter 2 today, but I think that uh, for for the sake of all of our attention spans that we're going to use this as our stopping spot for today and we will pick it up in Mark chapter two next week. And so while you are reading that and waiting for us, remember you can reach out to us at attvpodcast at the Remember you can find us on Facebook. Please be sure to share the podcast with your friends and family and neighbors and relatives and strangers and be sure to subscribe to the podcast so we reach you in your feet each and every week. And we look forward to talking to you again next week.
3: Thanks for listening.
1: They haven't quite, you know, I, I, I. I huh. <laughs> <laughs>